Welcome to Soft Bites Podcast. Your life, your dentistry. We talk about ways to have more fun and meaning in one of the coolest and most rewarding professions in medicine. Conversations on how to bring awareness, create a healthy workplace, and provide emotional insights to make dentistry a fulfilling activity while making space for one's wonder, creativity, and freedom. Here are your hosts, Banuela and George Andre. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Soft Bites podcast. Um, today we have a very special. We have a very special guest with us. Today we have Dr. Parul Duamakar with us, and uh, we are really, really happy to have Dr. Parul uh, with us today. Uh, I'm just going to make a. a a short, short, short um, introduction of Dr. Paru. Um, she is a fellow dentist. Uh, she completed her degree from the University of Oklahoma and a general practice residency from Staten Island University Hospital. She lives in New York. Prior to moving to New York, she lived and worked in Calgary, Canada. Uh, her aim is to address all her patients' concern that brought uh, them to her and helped them uh, to live with a smile. She has two, two boys um, and she's here today with us to share uh, her brother's story, the story of Dr. Manu Dua. So Paru, welcome, welcome to the Soft Bites podcast. It's, uh, thank you, thank you so much for being here <laughs> with us. Um, in this podcast, me and uh, George Andrea, we, uh, we, we try to reflect um, on how we can be happier as dentists, how we can be more authentic, more connected with ourselves when, when working. We, we think that's one of the secrets of uh, happiness in, in dentistry, because we all know that dentistry is a beautiful profession, but has a lot of, of challenges. And I think that our conversation here today, it's going to, be, to bring many insights um, for all the colleagues that, that are going to listen to, to us. So I've, I've introduced you briefly, um, but uh, can you please tell us a little bit more about you, about your journey, and, and also to, to introduce us to your late brother and to his story? Sure. So first of all, thank you so much, both Manuela and uh, George Andre, for having me here. It's such a pleasure. Um, Absolutely. You know, a little bit about me, like you said, I'm a general dentist and I was doing all things dentistry, drill, fill, bill, um, until life took a trajectory that I had never anticipated in my wildest dreams. Um, my younger and only sibling, uh, Manu, was diagnosed with oral cancer and he was a practicing dentist in Canada and Calgary. And, uh, you know, he had a dissatisfaction with the profession and he talks about that in his articles and his writings. And unfortunately it took cancer for him to exit the profession. He left after his, he had an initial surgery and the cancer returned and that's when he decided he's going to step away from practicing. And, you know, he, and he writes about how cancer gave him a ticket out. And unfortunately there are lots of us who, in some way are not happy with the profession, even though it's a rewarding profession. They're just aspects of it and it can be very daunting, isolating, 
Uh, we're in our little bubbles with a lot of stress factors. And if we don't find the right outlets and be, you know, like you said, mindful in our thinking, uh, it can take negative effects. And it's Manu recognized those and a little too late. Uh, and I just hope with sharing his story, sharing his journey, that it's not late for somebody else and uh, and we can be more more better versions of ourselves. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for that, for being willing to to share his story, to be able to 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 contribute positively to many of us who, who I think that pretty much all of us went through that um, that that delusion of dent that um, less positive aspect of the industry. I think it's it's actually quite common. So I like to ask you. So how old was he when he passed away? Thirty four. Thirty four. And and he, he he went through the process during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. How was that? That is the most challenging of all because, you know, I was in the U.S. and he was in Canada and our borders were shut. For me to travel, I had to do a compassion release from the government of Canada, which is a lot of paperwork to be signed by doctors, to be signed by him, to uh, so that I didn't have to um, isolate myself because usually when you traveled internationally during COVID, you had to isolate for a week or two weeks, do PCR testing. I had, I could avoid that with a compassion release. So there was a lot of uh, paperwork um, that was involved. There was a lot of uncertainty because the time that I knew that Manu was going to, or he didn't have much time on his hands. That was December. That was before vaccination. So for my parents to allow me to come, you know, because they had to sign off on this paperwork that, yes, she's going to isolate in our house. Um, it was very challenging because my husband was worried about me having to travel without vaccinations to, we didn't know what the consequences were traveling by air. We didn't know if I would get infected. We're traveling to an immunocompromised patient, my elderly patient, parents. So there were so many factors that, Yes, we're dealing with cancer and yes, we're dealing with the treatment and, and the negative outcome. We knew time was limited and having to navigate that with COVID was just the worst situation, the worst times in the worst possible way. And compounded with the fact that as Manu went into hospice, he was admitted to the hospital on Friday, went to hospice on Saturday. And luckily I had my paperwork because it's only valid for a month and then so that was in December and I flew again in March. Luckily, I had all my paperwork. Had I not, I would have not made it to the funeral. And what was holding me back was PCR testing. That's why I missed him by one day. When I knew he was in hospice, he didn't have, he, it was a matter of hours. And what inhibited me to take a plane was a PCR test. And it was taking record time, you know, three days I didn't have three days. I had maybe a day. And so, and while I'm trying to navigate that, it's like, oh, PCR testing, how can I get tested? Who is he able to test this faster? These are not things we should have to think of when we know our loved one is dying. And I consider myself lucky I made it to the funeral and I got to be there to say the last goodbye that a lot of people didn't have. COVID stole that from them. And I consider I'm not, you know, um, I'm not ungrateful for that, but 
it just made the whole situation very challenging. Even at the day of the funeral, I was on with phone with the Canadian consulate to give me a limited release to attend the funeral because only 20 people are allowed, but I am going to a funeral home. There are all these roadblocks being checked on by the authorities. You check into the ArriveCan app. There were all these protocols that I had to manage while dealing with the death. So I wish that on no one else. And, and because we couldn't have a proper funeral with our loved ones, we couldn't get, you know, when you travel through grief, you want a village around you protecting you. You want people comforting you. You want hugs. You want, uh, you want just somebody to see a friendly face. And Manu didn't have that during his treatment. A lot of his treatment was in isolation because of COVID. He didn't have somebody with him during the appointments, during chemotherapy, during radiation. He was alone and we were alone in our grief. And so it's very unique challenges that COVID brought upon, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, Manu going through his cancer journey alone, did he find uh, peace in writing? Because uh, he documented all the, all the process through, through his blog um, was it yes. something that he already did before, uh, or, or it was something that he, he discovered with, uh, with this journey and with the fact that he, 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 he was alone, like you, like you just said, due to, due to the pandemic, uh, how did this blog and how did this writing and the, 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 the writing through the process come about? And, and do you think that it helped him, helped them with this, with this mm-hmm. journey? Absolutely. Uh, so he initially started writing about his cancer. He talked about it in the dental town. And that was in September when he was featured on the cover. And it was about his startup practice in Calgary, how he had started Patient Zero and built this practice. And then he talks about Dr. Heal Thyself. That's the article he published. And it was because I think there was such a lack of understanding of what you're going through uh, at the age of 33, that he had half his tongue uh, resected and grafted. He had big scars. He had scars of the neck dissection, uh, the, the uh, thyroid, the feeding tube. So he had all these disfigurements, or and I wouldn't say that, uh, scars on his body that spoke of his journey through cancer. And there was such a lack, I guess, of understanding. And I think that is because we didn't go through it. I didn't go through it because I was navigating through other things in my life. I didn't get that he was facing, uh, you know, this stolen identity almost. He was this fit person who played rugby, who did all these things. He was up and going, happy-go-lucky guy. And when he was at the peak of his life, he got hit with this diagnosis where he was almost in like denial of. So, when he started writing it and brought him connections to other people that understood his journey and that brought him comfort and he initiated it. Um, And then when the cancer was more aggressive and when he was devoid of now, not only his family, not truly understanding what he's facing, um, having to face death a few times when he's unable to breathe, uh, when he had fluid build up, he had to go back and forth to the hospital, unable to walk, unable to make a few sentences. 
that's when he really, like mentally he was all there. His mind was very active, um, but he couldn't verbalize. So this was just this outlet that he needed. And that brought him connections to other people. And it gave him a sense of healing that, um, that his closest friends and family could not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Life Interrupted, Dr. Dua's uh, Survival Guide, uh, is uh, a book that you edited after uh, his death to, to honor him. How, how did Life mm -hmm. Interrupted uh, uh, came, came to be? Because it's, 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 the, it's his texts, right? So it's his blog uh, texts. Why yes. did you decide so to, when to I... edit this book? So when Manu, I saw Manu for the last time alive in December of 2020, and all we did was watch movies and listen to songs. There was nothing else. It was frigid cold in Calgary. He wouldn't go out for a walk, and he was showing me his writings, and he said, I want to be published. And I said, all right, you have nothing else. He was single, no kids. There was no other distractions to keep him off cancer. I said, all right, you, you focus on writing. I will find you a publisher. And I found a publisher and we were in talks. And in February, I said, you know, the publisher, I found somebody, they're ready to publish your book. Let's get all your writings. I need all your original documents. He's like, relax. I got time. I want to write more. Don't, don't push me. <laughs> I'm like, all right, fine. You do what you want, finish your writing, but I have somebody who's interested. And, um, unfortunately time was not on his hands. And he passed. And he used to call his blogs Dr. Dua Survival Guide. So after his death, I went to his house and I opened his mail to get the uh, Donaldtown magazine where his last article about leaving dentistry this way out was published. And it's in the book. And I walk into his house and everything was there, you know, because he got rushed to the hospital. He went straight to hospice on Saturday and died on Sunday. So. I walk in, he's got his Legos that are still unmade, his laptop sitting there, his food that he wanted to eat. He was rushed right after dinner. Dirty dishes are still in the sink. I mean, you know, his blanket where he lay, everything was there but him. It was his life interrupted. And that's where the title comes from. And then I got on his laptop and I helped finish the story he started because he had written such important aspects about life while facing mortality. He knew his time was limited and he wasn't angry at what life, the cards he was dealt with. He accepted his fate and he had made peace with it. And had I left, if I'd left that on his laptop in the Dropbox, nobody would see and nobody would benefit from it. And I couldn't do anything for him as a sister, as a daughter, I, as a dentist. I couldn't help him because of the circumstances that we were in with COVID. So my way to honor him and was to grant his last desire to be published. So I got it together. I completed his story on his laptop and it was my way to cope with the grief. And also it... Um, It just helped create something that hopefully somebody will look at and be positively affected by him. It was just my way to honor him. Um, your brother's experience was um, 
very powerful and very inspiring, especially for the dental community. Uh, he, he had his own clinic at that at that point, and he had um, some bank loans of, for, and he was a bit concerned for what we have read on the, on his articles. He was concerned with the future of his staff, the future of his patients, the financial situation. Um, how did he cope with that? Do you have any idea how, how he was feeling about that? He was. He was very concerned about it. And that's why, like, his surgery, initial surgery was in August. And he was back seeing patients in October. Because he was so concerned about his patients, his practice, uh, the staff, he didn't want the practice to be so shut down. This is pre-COVID. Then COVID hit. And the cancer came back simultaneously. That's when he decided, you know what, I'm going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on my health and I'm going to focus on getting better and say goodbye to dentistry. So luckily for him, he was able to sell the practice to somebody that helped take care of um, the bills and, you know, he let go. And which was good because it would have been very hard for my parents who are non-dental to sell that practice. So he tried to take care of all that he could possibly could uh, while he was still sick. And he sold his practice while receiving chemo and radiation treatment. He was getting that treatment during that summer and he did it all by himself. So he wanted to make sure somebody good got it. And he was awarded Best of Montgomery. That's where the city that he practiced in uh, award, you know, while he was still alive. So he had felt gratifying to him that he had accomplished something. And um, and his legacy still carries on. But yeah, he, he was able to sell it and make sure that good people got it and not like, not like a chain of dentistry like DSOs we have in the U.S. He sold it to an individual who would provide the same level of care. So it was very important to him. But it's, uh, it's uh, Paru, for what I understand, um, by reading his, uh, his articles, um, when he had the, 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 um, the first surgery, he still got back to the, to the clinic, right? He still got back to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was only after the the cancer uh, appeared again and he had to have the the second surgery that he decided to sell the practice. Right. But on during the first uh, uh, surgery, even uh, he had uh, with all he went through, he still went uh, back to to work, and at that time, he maintained the clinic. Right, he he had a colleague to that mm-hmm. he, he found to, right. to work at the clinic to maintain the clinic, and he went back to mm-hmm. to work after that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he was finding like August he had the surgery. September he actually traveled to New York to see me, and October first he was practicing. He hardly gave himself time, and. When he started back work, and I remember he had half his tongue resected, so he had to learn how to chew, how to talk. He had a graft taken, radial nerve graft was taken from his left arm. So while he was practicing, he started to notice numbness if he walked for a long time, um, some mental fogness. He did have some, you know, he couldn't work at the same level as he used to be able to work and attend that many patients. That was October. April... Um, first he got the diagnosis that the cancer had returned and March was when things were getting worse with COVID. So with that combination of cancer returning and COVID, he's like, 
it's time for me to wrap up. And, and then he consequently sold it by June of that mm-hmm. year, 2020. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm going to read that paragraph that I, uh, we were actually talking uh, before we start uh, recording. And I'm going to read that paragraph that is uh, on his, the, from his first article uh, published in Dental Town. Uh, by the way, I'm going to, on the episode notes, I'm going to put the links not only for the book, but also to, for, this, that, that, for this articles that uh, Manu wrote. But what he, he wrote on this uh, first article was, I had until the point convinced myself to live in constant fear, fear of failure, fear mm-hmm. of re- rejection, fear of staffing in, uh, issues, fear of clinic issues, and fear of life in general. The irony is, I didn't understood what real fear was until I was faced with one of the most frightening prospects, my cancer diagnosis. And I find this to describe dentists so so well, so to live in fear of what might happen. Uh, imagine fear. Um, and only when we face true fear, we realize that we don't know what true fear is. And Manu really put this in, in, into, into two words. And this gives this very clear testimony when, uh, when faced with his own uh, mortality. But um, this is so, uh, I, uh, again, I think it describes so well uh, dentists that we, yeah, so, so, so common. I hear this all, all the time. And that's one of the reasons why mindfulness has uh, works very well with dentists because it gives this body-mind connection. Um, mm-hmm. But we have all this this fear and we aim to 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 perfection um how this must have been very frightening and it always is when when someone uh, is faced with 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 such a, a hard such a hard reality was this uh hard for him to to accept uh was this reality hard for him to accept in the beginning so it's a very loaded question. <laughs> I can never I can I can tell you how I think that how he felt. Because but did he, um, sorry, but did he, did he ever talk to you about uh when, when was the first diagnosis? Mm-hmm. I mean what did you feel were his feelings towards the towards the diagnosis? So yes, we and I think I'm almost 8 years older than him. So he would always share with me first before telling my parents, even the cancer diagnosis, cancer recurring, also because I'm in the field and I know and I can look like a clinician rather than just a parent or a sister. So he had shown me the initial lesion in June um, and it was on his tongue. It had been there persistent for months. And that was June, just before his 33rd birthday. And I looked at it and I said, Manu, can you please get this checked out? Because I showed it to five other oral surgeons. And I said, what do you think this is? And everybody said cancer. And I told him, Manu, this is cancer. Get it biopsied. He's like, no, it can't be cancer. I can't have cancer. I'm healthy. I'm a, you know, he's at the prime of his life. There was a lot of denial. There was a lot of arrogance in that. Um, cancer can't happen to me. And I think no 32 year old wants to be diagnosed when you are at the top of your game. Like you've built a startup practice. He's been on the cover of a magazine that he's been on this podcast with Howard. Like he was on 
like the peak, like he was just in ecstasy in, of what he had accomplished in life. Um, and at that point, he had just bought his first house. This is the second house. First house he was renting, second house he had bought the ideal house in just the way he wanted it. And um, he's like, I can't have cancer. This can't be it. I said, all right. So, and I flew in July, as I always do, to travel in the summertime to Calgary. And I said, Manu, show me your tongue. And that lesion that was like, yay big, five centimeters had grown like half his tongue. It was ulcerated brown, but leathery, couldn't eat certain things, couldn't talk properly. And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? Why haven't we looked at this? He He's like, well, you know, I'm, I did get steroid treatment. They think it's lichen planus. I had my wisdom teeth pulled out. You know, he's like, I'm getting the biopsy once you leave. Again, I don't think he re- expected it to be cancer. Um, and then once the biopsy came, and this is when we had celebrated his house. We'd done a housewarming. We did all those things. And when the biopsy came, he called me and he said, you know what? This is cancer. I'm stage two. And once the surgery was done, I said, why didn't you get chemo and radiation right after the first surgery? You know, and that is one of the biggest faults I felt in his treatment. While he was open and exposed, they could have radiated because uh, the cancer returned back on the lymph nodes. Uh, He had a neck swelling consequently in a few months. So had he been radiated, had been more aggressive treatment, maybe he would have survived. But he said, um, you know, there's a lot of side effects. My doctors are not pushing it. I'll be fine. I'm just going to go back to work. I've got all these bills to pay. I've got all this stuff. I'll be fine. I'm going to be good. So he was still so hopeful that he's beaten and we, we planned a family trip, which COVID got canceled. And they found when his cancer returned in April of 2020, that's when he decided to leave practice. And they found a lesion on his chest, which was very small, too small to biopsy. And it was supposed to get followed up in six months, which got pushed to seven months. In between these seven months, he had gotten chemo radiation and he was thriving. He was out kayaking. The picture in the book is him kayaking. He was playing golf. He bought himself the car of his dreams. He bought a Porsche. He got a dog. Like He started to do the things on his checkout because now he's faced cancer twice. And he said, I'm going to live for me and I'm going to do the things that bring me joy and things of why should I wait till I'm 60, 70 years old? He was still hopeful that he's going to survive. And that is when, sorry, that is when he sold his practice. This right? is when, yeah, he, this was the summer. He sold his practice. He's got chemo radiation done. Um, he survived that. He's thriving. And this is after two rounds of surgery. Unfortunately, his follow up from April uh, was supposed to be in October. It didn't happen till November for his chest x ray. And that chest x ray showed that the lesion seen in April, which was small, had become four times the size. He was supposed to get a biopsy, but the biopsy did not happen because before the biopsy, he was admitted for failure to breathe. And that's when they discovered fluid in his lungs. But I remember him getting the chest x-ray and calling me that evening uh, in November. And he said, I don't have the final diagnosis or the final report, but I've had my friend, a radiologist, read it. And this is metastatic. I am going to die and I am ready for it. 
And that was in November of 2020. And I said, no, you can't die. There's got to be something. It could be something else. Let's wait for the official report. Let's wait for the biopsy. The biopsy was December 7th, but prior to that, he was admitted in the hospital. And that's when he got the plorexin um, for draining the fluid that accumulated in his lungs. He was draining about a liter of fluid a day. Um, and it was in his lung lining, so it was not operable at this point. Uh, so at this point, it was just a lot of palliative care, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, clinical trials, just to give him as much life possible. The, I, I, I'd like to read you um, two paragraphs of sure. um, of when he, um, uh, after the second surgery, which he, he already had uh, his practice sold. I'm just going to read it for you. Mm-hmm. So... He was writing, I felt such a deep sense of release, of relief and release of tension, as if a great weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Over time, people around me noticed a great change in my personality. I felt more relaxed, calmer, just a better person overall. The fault was never with my profession. The fault was that I recognized the inner conflict, yet never had the courage to do something about it earlier. Unfortunately, it took a life-changing event to forcibly thrust me into a different frame of mind. And for that, despite the pain and turmoil, I am deeply grateful. As a transition into the new life, devoid of hand pieces and hygiene checks, I find myself excited to explore all that is around me and engage the sense of self that died a long time ago as I was forced to put a mask and pretend to be someone that I wasn't. The dark but beautiful side of facing your mortality at an early age is that you realize that death is the only ever-present factor and it respects no boundaries. The sooner we come to terms with this fact, the faster we can embrace our inner self and take full advantage of the precious years we may have left. In summary, if you deeply feel that what you are doing goes against every fiber of your body, spend some time doing some soul-searching as to why you're actually there. You will be surprised that most of us have chosen our paths without an in-depth analysis as to what we actually want, and hence, we are left with a deep sense of unfulfillment. This can lead you into two paths. On one, you realize your original sense of purpose and your why, and can lead it to a renewed sense of fulfillment. The other can identify a glaring gap between your present choices and your true need for fulfillment and realize your true need and, and realize that on your current journey, the two will never meet. So when he wrote this, did he already have the, the notion that he was about to die when he wrote this? Yes, totally. He knew. Um... The, all the articles he started writing in September after, before knowing that it was metastatic after his second round of surgery. That's when he started. He needed a way to get out. He knew, he's like, I have faced death, you know, in the face. And he knew he was going to die. Like the last essay that he wrote um, on New Beginnings And I found, when I read that, I knew he knew the time was, um, it was a matter of time. Because this last essay that he wrote was in January 
of 2021 when he was admitted in the hospital for two weeks in isolation, complete isolation. Parents weren't allowed to come in. He shielded us from a lot of his diagnosis and treatment because he didn't, you know, he didn't want us to see him suffer, especially my parents were watching him deteriorate in front of his eyes. So he shielded us from his prognosis. He's like, like, for example, he was admitted for high calcium levels. I'm like, Manu, why do you have high calcium levels? What's going on? Tell me. He's like, oh, I took too much calcium pills. No, it was because his PET scan showed that there was metastasis all the way down to his pelvic bone. He was losing calcium. His body was dying inside out. Um, so, you know, so that last article that he wrote and um, on New Beginnings, the last line, I can read this passage and why it's so meaningful. Yep. It says, and I quote, one of the most important things that I have learned during these turbulent and difficult times is to accept the loss of control and to continue to ride the wave day by day. The ability to focus and get through each day is imperative when your world collapses around you. I write this as I'm in a hospital bed with one lung almost collapsed from fluid. And to be perfectly honest, I have found my peace. I understand that every day is a new journey and I focus on getting through the days, enjoying little victories and having complete faith that the future will unfold as it should. And my worries and anxieties are normal but fruitless and will not help me define a new path in life. What is imperative is inner peace, strength, and truly believing that there will be a better life in this world or the next. And that's the last, that's the last thing he wrote. And that, when I read that, because he shared this with me, and he said, what do you think? And I'm like, I knew he knew. It's, it's a matter of time. And he, he was just, he didn't fear fear anymore, right? Like how many times do we stop ourselves from doing something? And then once we overcome it, we feel more empowered that, you know what, I've faced this. I can do anything else. I can take on more challenges. And he's like, I face the worst fear of all, of dying, of not being able to get up the next day and doing the things that we love, seeing the people that we love, knowing a certain form of certainty that, yes, when I get up tomorrow, I'll be able to do all X, Y, and Z. When we don't get up, we don't know what lies ahead. And there's so much uncertainty and unknown and fear of what lies ahead. He's like, I've faced that so many times. I've accepted death as an old friend and it's fine. It, whatever happens, how things will unfold, they'll will as, and just a part of letting go. And I think as Dennis, we are so type A and we want to control everything in these little, little things. And we want to make the staff happy and the patients happy because God forbid we do something wrong. They'll put up a Google review and, and that will tarnish our reputation or they'll bad mouth us. And, Whatever it may be, it's just so out of our control and we're always trying to control these things that we can't. And it's just letting go and just letting life takes you as it comes. So to find that, you know what, I can't control this, let me do the things that I do enjoy, that do bring me joy and happiness, that I'm doing for me, not because for somebody else to make them happy. Am I happy internally? And that's what this whole journey of his was, that 
live your best possible life. Whatever happens tomorrow, who knows? Tomorrow's not promised to anyone. Yeah. So, so both Niam and Well, we, we thank you for that because I think um, it's it's one of the messages that we've been trying to pass on to dentists, which is actually there's just, there's so many things out of our control, especially in dentistry. And and regarding your brother, I would like to to ask you some questions of how he was before the diagnosis, how he was before cancer. So you were saying that he was on, on his top game. He was uh, all out, a very extrovert individual. He was at the peak of his career. But then what we see when we, when we read these articles after diagnosis, we see a very almost spiritual guy, almost um, very conscious, a very mindful, a very spiritual person. Uh, do you, do you ever uh, heard him talking before before the cancer about these things, or was he all out in dentistry? He just wanted to succeed. He just wanted to be successful. Did he ever mention to you that he wasn't happy with the profession, or that he was maybe trying to find something outside dentistry that will that will fulfill him more? How are the, how are those two brothers different? So yes, he did have dissatisfaction with the profession. I think he. He talked about this with this podcast. He was a guest on a podcast. And he says, you know, I had this perception of dentistry that once you succeed, you're going to be kind of handed this golden, you know, ease to happiness with all this money. But he's like, this is, it's hard work. And it's a lot of like aggravation and there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction. And he talks about that and how expensive it is to become a dentist. (laughs) But also, we usually say here in the podcast that one of the worst things that can that can happen that can happen to in dentistry is to be successful, yes. <laughs> because it brings a lot of complexity. It, it does. brings a lot of complexity. It does because success comes with a price. What price did you pay yeah. to get there? You know, price. So of- he was aware of that. Yeah. He's aware of it. He's like, you know, I, and he worked in rural areas to gain a knowledge and and get higher income, but, and he talks about this in his podcast, what he sacrificed that one year working in ruler town of Alberta in like frigid cold, minus 50 degrees Celsius in isolation, not a lot of public, you know, social life, not close to family, friends and nothing to do. It's a small town. Um, And a lot of people trying to practice in big cities because they want that social interaction. He's like, I paid a price to earn that money and the skills. I paid that price in being away from my family. And, but I was able to gain knowledge, whatever, and now come and pay off my loans really quickly, my student loans. So he's like, it does come. And what price are you willing to pay at the end of the day? And are you comfortable paying that price? So he had acknowledged, these were the things he was starting to realize, but he wasn't ever very spiritual. And and he was an atheist didn't believe in God, um, whatever matters. And, but he was never a spiritual person. And I felt like when he started writing and going through his cancer and facing death so closely, he had reached this, uh, you know, supreme divine, reached a place of nirvana. And I feel like he was just an old soul in a young body. So he may not have been in human years old, 
but his soul was an old soul and he came, he found his purpose. Um, he wrote his writings and he was done. His job was done. He was brave, basically. Very brave. He was always brave and he never shied away. Like he was very straightforward. It was, there was no shades of gray with him. It was black or white. He, he told you like it was, and that is true with all his friends, all his peers, uh, even among us as parents and as an older sister, he would tell me off, like, you're not doing this right. You should be doing this instead. You know, there was no like, let me sugarcoat this and tell you. He was very, he knew what he wanted and he went for it. So he was very brave in that sense, always. Uh, Paru, yeah. besides the book, you also recorded a, a, a podcast where you uh, talk to friends and colleagues of, of, of Manu and, 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 and friends of yours also. I heard, I heard the podcast uh, last year. Uh, the podcast named, by the way, is Life Interrupted, Dr. Duo's Survival Guide, the podcast companion. Um, how was that experience? How was that experience of, um, of talking uh, with, uh, with uh, friends and colleagues? And did this help you? Um, does it, as, did it help your, or your healing process, your grief uh, process? Because uh, um, I can imagine that uh, it's like you said, when you are uh, suffering, you want, uh, you, want, you want people around you and you want to, to be able to get, to get comfort. Um, did this uh, conversations help you uh, on, your, on your grief uh, process? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because just to remind your listeners, I lost my only sibling. So the bonds that you share with a sibling are very unique. They're very different than a parent-child. And especially a young, losing a younger sibling is just so out of the norm. It's not the unnatural. It's not the natural form of life. And so losing that and not have anybody to share it with, um, compounded with the fact that my parents lived apart uh, in a different country. I couldn't share Manu with him. And they were in their own sense of grief. And they didn't understand or they didn't understand my loss um, because for them, they still had another child and grandkids. I have no other uh, siblings. And once they um, cross over, I won't have a sense of my core family with me. And, and that's that realization. And I didn't have my grandparents. I didn't have, I lost my grandparents the same year. I don't have any cousins around me. I didn't have any of my close friends who I've grown up with because I've grown up in different parts of the world. So that grief, I didn't have that village protecting me, um, sharing stories, comforting. Then on top of it was COVID. So that when you go to a funeral, you get to see your loved ones and you get to go through that grieving process and meet people. I didn't have that either. So I was in a lot of isolation with my grief process And this podcast helped me connect to the people who knew Manu the best, who were there in his last days, um, where I couldn't even be there for him in the last days. So they gave me an insight to Manu, a different aspect of Manu, like how you are with friends is different than you are with your siblings. So those little stories, sharing those snippets, um, just sharing Manu, 
uh, the essence of him. And it was just this unexpressed love and joy that even they didn't get a chance. A lot of them didn't make it to the funeral. And it was that unexpressed love that we had. And it was just a way to get some sort of a closure, some sort of a grieving village to help connect with and be like, yes, my grief is real. And yes, there are people who are mourning him just the way I am, just not because they're not physically close to me doesn't make the grief any less. And it, it was that combination. Yeah. And what, what do you think that you have, I don't know if learn, learned is a, is a good word, um, but were there changes in your life, in your prof the way that you see your profession that you started to, to take um, because probably your brother would like you to do those? Yes, a lot of changes. Um, the way I practice dentistry, I stepped away from where I'm seeing a lot of Medicaid patients, a little bit different in Europe than in the U.S., and seeing more fee-for-service or different type of insurance patients where I could be with my patient rather than provide more quality than quantity, like having to see 30 patients a day. I can see my five, six patients and still get paid reasonably well. Um, so the way I practice dentistry, picking and choosing and my manner of life, like finding a purpose, um, you know, like I would get up, go to work, see my kids and I'm done. And it's creating this sense of like, the Manu talks about it. And that made me reflect tomorrow. I'm going to go, you know, whenever, whenever my time's up, it'll be up. And one day I'll be a footnote in my grandkids. Yes, I had a grandmother who did this. I'll be a footnote somewhere. But to leave some sort of a stamp or some sort of a way to leave a legacy, which Manu did, it's like, yes, I helped carry it on for him. It's his story. He started it. I'm just completing it. So it gave me a, a new defined purpose um, to help people who have traveled this journey and just didn't know how to cope with it. I didn't. I had to learn it. And, you know, to learn grief processing while being, I mean, there were so many times that Manu would say, oh, this has happened. When Manu went into hospice, I was in, I, I was seeing patients. I knew that Manu was going to die in a matter of days. I was still treating patients. And to step away you know, I'm crying in my office. Oh my God, this is happening. I can't do anything. That loss of control. I can't control the situation or anything, but I have to step out of this office and I have to go take care of somebody's filling or somebody's something trivial that maybe seemed trivial to me, but it's big for them, you know, and refocus. So it's learning those coping skills and not to lose yourself in life, but like to get up and rise from it and to to start over and it's never too late. And, and I started over to redefine what I want to accomplish in finding my footing in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you think that, um, like, like we say in the beginning, uh, both me and Manuel, we, we discuss a lot of these things here in, in the podcast and we do see, uh, this common, common issues in, in dentistry all over the world. Whenever you are, whenever you practice dentistry, there's either insurance or private. Um, you always have this pressure, like something like you were saying, that is uh, 
not that much important, but for them, this is like the big deal. Um, after this experience, what do you think that what do you think that dentists in their twenties and in their thirties they should be aware of that you you don't think that that they are aware of at this at this point of of our education? And do you think that should start in dental schools? Absolutely, I think it is how to manage stress because dentistry is stressful, and to realize you cannot please all the people all the time. Like that sense of like, we have to please our professors, we have to please our patients, we have to please our staff. It's like, if not everybody's supposed to be in your life, always, they serve a purpose and they leave. You learn and you leave and you learn and you grow. And, you know, Manu says, don't let failures define you. So what if you failed an exam? So what if you failed a year of your life? It's getting back, you know, you failed a year of dentistry. So what? You can repeat it and, and do better and still get up back on it if that's still what you want to do. It's like realizing that don't let them, don't let that, you know, deviate you from what you're really wanting to do. Um But it is, you know, I don't think they teach us coping skills at all, the, the rejection. You know, we're always like, we're so, we have to get the best grades. We have to be top of the class if you want to be in a specialty. We have to do well so that professors notice you for a research paper or to go out and do something. We're always like pushing ourselves to the edge. And if you notice, some of the students who are on the top of their class may not have great listening skills. We need listening skills to listen to our patients, to see why they're here in the first place, not focus on selling the most costliest treatment, but serving the purpose why the patient brought is in your office in the first place. You know, what is the chief complaint? So it's recognizing these listening skills, coping skills, time management skills, and learning to love yourself at the end of the day. It doesn't matter You know, these little, little things doesn't matter. Um, your shiny composite or your shiny amalgam with, you know, where you can see your face doesn't matter. What will matter is your patient left happy and your patient felt they were taken care of. That's what's going to matter at the end of the day. Yeah. But don't you think that, for example, in the, um, and the reality in the U.S. is very different from the reality in Europe and in most of the world? Yes. Because The amount of debt that you have to to assume to do dentistry, it's just like this this stamp for the next 10 years in your life. I mean, you have to, I it, from, from one perspective, I do understand the amount of pressure because um, it's 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 really a heavy burden to to be able to to pay all that debt. So, what's the typical what's the typical time that a dentist now in US takes? to pay the debt from, from his, oh um, could be your, could be 20 years. I don't know, you know, I'm out of debt, but yes, there are people who are still paying their, their debts. Uh, you know, I graduated a long time ago. My debt was smaller, but people who are getting out right now are five, $700,000 us in debt, depending on where you go, not compounded with, um, the fact if you do a residency or, fellowship or whatever. But, and we have eight years after high school in, in Europe, you go right after high school. So you don't have those extra yes. three, four years yes. that we do. So 
It's, and that's if you get in the first time. If you don't get in, you're looking at 10 years. So it's a lot of time. Um, and pressure. Uh, t- right. And then you can't start on life because you have a debt in the sense to buy a practice or to um, start a family, to buy a house. You know, the things that you're almost, you feel like you're given a golden ticket because you got into dental school, you're going to make these big bucks. It doesn't that actually, that's, translate. That's, that's a, little, a little prison, isn't it? It is. And and I see, I get it. I get the pressure and I get it. Um, but that's a whole different ball of, you know, a uh, whole different Pandora's box to open up yeah. to why we got here in the first place. <laughs> Yeah. But but there is hope, and and if you've chosen dentistry, you know practice it with a good heart, and be kind to yourself, mm-hmm. yeah, because money that, will come and go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that uh, yeah, and that that has to do with what you were saying about dentists always um, uh, having this uh, need or having this. Uh, feeling that they they need to always to please and always to 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 be the best and um, and sometimes that forces them to like um, wear this uh, this mask that they are not themselves so they lose themselves in the in the process so uh, so it's it's not easy um, due to all the challenges that the profession uh, has uh, uh, there in the in the US there's this this concern about the the huge uh, loans that we don't have here in in Europe but if you face all these challenges uh, with with authenticity, if you can really connect to yourself and and be yourself and and to do what you find is 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 the best uh, dentistry, uh, uh, an authentic uh, dentistry, the path gets easier. If you lose yourself along the process, that's the, then the path gets much, much uh, difficult, and 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 then it will lead you to to very, very difficult, uh, very difficult journey. And I think that's one of the of the messages of of Manu is that uh, don't uh, don't lose yourself. Uh, really try to 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 be authentic and to 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 stay connected. Um, and and just uh, for for finish, um, Paru, if you if for the ones that are listening, um, I don't know if you have any message that you want to 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 pass through uh, or that you would like uh, for the ones listening to that to, your brother to, to, or to do you be, think that your yeah. brother might eventually want mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. No, Manu always, you know, Manu always said, and I'll quote him here. He he said that um, I'm going to phrase it right, and I quote him: "I would like to share my story, but even in the worst of times, under the worst of circumstances, the human mind, body, and soul have a remarkable capacity to heal." We are more powerful than we can imagine. And I think that's so true. We forget, you know, in life and
and how we're going. We're like, we can't do this. We can't accomplish this. Let me just do it so it's done. But we can learn from our mistakes and we can rise up and we can be better versions of ourselves. And, and yeah, not to lose, you know, ourselves. And it's not just us. It's also the people around us that get affected. Our relationships get affected. And what at the end of the day, we're working so hard is for our children and for our spouses and, you know, whatever we're accomplished, we're building a life. Let it exude positive energy, not come back and be like, oh, that one feeling that drove me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to life beyond that and and look up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's more to the history that's, also. That's just a powerful testimonial. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. I'm sorry, I, I missed what you said. <laughs> that's that's just a powerful a powerful testimonial, isn't it? It's just yeah. um, and and especially the fact that your that your brother was a, was a very um, well succeeded dentist, and just the fact that he, he, he let go and he and he faced his fears and and the. He, if he, f- he found some joy within the chaos that he was going through, isn't it? He finds he found some peace there, and I think that's a beautiful message to 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 wrap up this uh, this lovely conversation that we had with you. And it will be lovely. It would, it would be lovely to have you um, again in the future. And you you can always count on us to, to share your brother's story and whatever we can help. Thank that you. Would be, that would be a pleasure for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Thank you both for taking the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Paru, for your time and for your for, for this lovely conversation. I'm going to put all the links um, in the show notes, um, the links to Manu's articles, the links to the, the podcast that you recorded, the links for the book. Um, everything will be on the on the show notes. And um, and yeah, it's like uh, George Andre said, you are always welcome. We have we me and George Andre we have a course in in the south of Portugal, uh, which is conscious leadership uh, in dentistry. You are very welcome if you want to 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 join yes, us. It would be lovely to have you. It will yeah, bring your family. I don't know if you ever been in Portugal, but uh, you know Not Portugal. Yet. It's on the bucket list. <laughs> okay, I've so... never been. I've been to Spain, uh, France, and. I've been all around, but not mm-hmm. to Portugal. <laughs> I've been around okay, the other so countries. You are, yeah. you are you are invited. Yeah. If you ever come, let us know. Um, and and if I you want to that. join us in our that course, you are you are very welcome. And thank you so much. Thank for you. Your appreciate time. that. Of course. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Pearl. Thank you. Thank you.